Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Stroke is a leading cause of death in the United States and a major cause of disability for adults. Nearly 800,000 people have a stroke each year. That's about one person every 40 seconds. May is National Stroke Awareness Month, and knowing causes and risk factors, as well as warning signs and symptoms, can save a life. Moreover, adopting a healthier lifestyle is the best way to prevent a stroke. Today, my guests are Shannon Burton, nurse practitioner with the Stroke Center at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, and Lee Stroy, a stroke survivor and ambassador with the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. Shannon's going to talk about causes and risk factors, signs and symptoms, and treatments for a stroke. Lee will share his story about having multiple strokes and what he has faced during his recovery and rehabilitation. He will also tell us what he's doing to prevent another stroke. So welcome, Shannon and Lee, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. All right. Well, Shannon, let's start with you. We need to kind of have a bit of a tutorial here uh, about stroke. So let's start by having you tell us what is happening to a person when she or he has a stroke. Yeah, so when a person is having a stroke, that means there's a decreased amount of blood and oxygen getting to the brain. And because of that decreased amount of blood and oxygen, the patient begins to experience symptoms, whether that's difficulty with speech, or maybe weakness on one side. If this is continues and we don't restore blood and oxygen back to that tissue, it can cause permanent damage leading to death of that tissue, which then becomes a permanent stroke. And all of this, when it's happening, explain to us what are causes of a stroke? Is there just one cause or are there more likely to be more than one, one reason for having a stroke? What are the causes? Yes, definitely. So um, I like to break it into the two subcategories or two different types of stroke um, because they both have different causes. So patients who are having an ischemic stroke, um, which is a type of stroke that's caused by a blockage, the most common causes of those types of stroke are atrial fibrillation or an irregular heartbeat. Um, It also may be called that as well. Um, Some other uncontrolled health risk factors like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, these things can lead to ischemic strokes. But then we also have a separate type of stroke called a hemorrhagic stroke, 
which is bleeding into the brain. And you can see um, those type of strokes with patients who may have aneurysms or abnormalities in their blood vessels that break open and cause bleeding into the brain. High blood pressure is also a common cause of bleeding into the brain, as well as complications from medications such as blood thinners. Those are some causes of stroke. Okay, and is the ischemic stroke, is that more common than the hemorrhagic stroke? Kind of what, what are the percentages, say, of the occurrence of, of each of these types of strokes? Yeah, so definitely ischemic is more common. We see that more commonly about 80% of the time. Um, and we see hemorrhagic strokes about 20% of the time. All right. Well, so we now have the two different types. There's also something that a lot of people hear about, a transient ischemic attack or TIA. Explain explain what that is and how it differs from the ischemic and the hemorrhagic strokes. Yeah, so TIA, uh, frequently we hear it called a mini stroke or a, a warning stroke, some people may refer to it as. But a TIA, um, it stands for transient ischemic attack. So that first word transient lets us know that this is something that kind of comes and goes as temporary. And so this is a temporary blockage of a blood vessel that can cause some temporary reduction in that blood flow of uh, blood and oxygen to that part of the brain, which can cause the patient to have symptoms, which can look very much so like a stroke. But the difference is, is that it's transient, it's not permanent, so the symptoms don't last. Um, so usually they will have symptoms for about up to 24 hours. I mean, when we do a CT scan or MRI, we may not see any signs of damage to the brain. So that's what makes it different from stroke because stroke there's permanent damage left on the brain that we can see. Um, with TIA, you don't have that. The tissue has not died. I'd like to hear a little bit more about these TIAs because can they happen indefinitely? How often might they occur within a, an individual? I mean, once a day, once a week, uh, or does it vary? Might a TIA lead to the stroke? What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we know that patients who have TIAs are at very high risk of having an actual stroke. And so even if you're having a TIA, it's a definitely a good time to seek medical attention. So we can try to figure out what's causing the symptoms. Is there a narrow blood vessel that kind of is getting some decreased blood flow that can kind of give you these recurrent transient symptoms? Do we see an irregular heartbeat and little clots are being developed and that's what's causing the symptoms? So it, it can vary from person to person. Some patients may only have one TIA. Um, other patients may have multiple, just depending on the cause. Um, and so, you know, it's very important to seek out medical care so we can try to figure out what's going on. And if there are any stroke, stroke risk factors that you may have, like high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, atrial fibrillation, that we can start to manage these things so we can reduce your risk of having TIAs or strokes in the future. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, Shannon, was blood pressure and high blood pressure. As I understand it, this is really one of the major reasons why people uh, have strokes. Can, can you explain a little bit more about 
high blood pressure and why that, that's the case? Yeah, so we know high blood pressure it has been coined the silent killer um, because usually it doesn't cause you any pain or any type of symptoms until it's caused damage. And so we know that nearly 75% of people with high blood pressure, they do not have it under control, according to the American Heart Association. But we do know that over time, high blood pressure can lead to narrowing of the arteries and weaken the arteries over time, which makes one prone to having both the blockage type or an ischemic stroke, as well as it can weaken the vessels to the point that they rupture or they break and they call it can cause bleeding into the brain. So definitely knowing that you have high blood pressure, checking it with your medical provider, checking it at your local CVS or at home to establish a baseline of your blood pressure is really essential. And then making sure that even if you're on medications for your blood pressure, that you're still checking your blood pressure because just because you're on medication doesn't mean that it's working or we may need to increase the dose or start you on something new. Um, so just making sure that you're definitely staying on top of the blood pressure and really getting good control over the blood pressure will help to reduce your risk of stroke as well as heart attack. And since we're talking about high blood pressure, Shannon, tell, tell us what is the ideal blood pressure? Yeah, so ideal blood pressure, we would like to see less than 120 over 80 is the normal blood pressure. Okay. And if one or the other of those numbers gets higher, is that cause for alarm? I mean, is there any wiggle room? Or just want to make sure our listeners understand that, you know, the blood pressure might be elevated for certain reasons, but when when is a cause for alarm? Yeah, so cause for alarm. So if your blood pressure is consistently, I would say over 140, over 90, should definitely be seeking medical attention from a trusted healthcare provider um, to start management, um, medica- medical management of your blood pressure. Okay, so uh, getting that blood pressure. And of course, we know sometimes that blood pressure goes up when you go see your doctor. It's the white coat syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why it's important, as I understand it, to take your blood pressure maybe a couple times a week just to make sure that it's normal, but that there is certain circumstances that could make it elevated, but not on a permanent basis. Would would you agree, Shannon? Yes, correct. So we do see patients who have white coat syndrome when they come into the office and their blood pressures are extremely elevated. Um, That's why I recommend taking it at home or going to like your local CVS, something that's not as pressured where you're in the comfort of your own home or you're just going about your normal day, um, you know, checking it at those times. So then you kind of have more of a baseline, um, especially if you get really nervous when you go to the when you go to the doctor's office. Okay. Well, I want to ask about a couple of other possibilities that might be risk factor. Talk to us a little bit about high cholesterol. Yeah. So high cholesterol, um, when we think of it, we think of it as uh, like a cholesterol plaque that gets laid down inside the blood the blood vessels when the cholesterol is really high. And if you think about your kitchen sink, over time you may cook bacon and pour the grease down the drain 
or you have some type of oily, greasy foods that you continually put down the drain. Over time, that drain gets clogged up because you've poured so much grease down into it. We think of that the same way with cholesterol in the arteries. Over time, that cholesterol just kind of begins to lay onto the arteries. It narrows the arteries and it can narrow the arteries to the point where they are blocked and which could cause a stroke. So we would recommend that having your cholesterol checked. Um, and usually when you come into the hospital, we are drawing, we're looking at your lipid panel or your cholesterol panels, and we're looking at that bad cholesterol, uh, the LDL. Um, and that number, we want to see that in patients who have had a stroke less than 70, those who haven't less than 100. So just making sure that we are controlling our cholesterol by watching our diets, trying to eat diets that are more in the Mediterranean diet, high in fruits and vegetables, poultry and fish, reducing our um, consumption of red meats, trying to stay away and avoid fried and fatty foods, trying to stay away from those sugary drinks. So really trying to adopt a lifestyle change where you reduce your amount of ingested cholesterol and fatty foods. Okay, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later when we chat with Lee to find out what his diet is about. But I just wanted to check a couple more risk factors. Might diabetes also uh, increase stroke risk? Yes, definitely. Um, we see that patients who have diabetes, um, especially uncontrolled diabetes, it can also lead to narrowing of the arteries in the brain as well as other parts of the body. Um, and this narrowing can cause patients to have strokes, the blockage type of strokes. And so when we're looking, we, look, we check something called a hemoglobin A1C, which allows us to kind of see where the blood sugar has been over the last three to four months. And so usually we would like to see that number less than seven. So anything higher than that, and this is in patients with diabetes, we would really want to control, um, get a little bit better control over the diabetes, whether that's, again, lifestyle management, medications such as insulin or pills, um, pills form of anti-diabetic medications. We really want to get control because, you know, the diabetes not only affects the peripheral fingertips and feet, you know, some people may say like, oh, I don't really have good sensation in my hands or I don't really have good sensation in my feet. And this can happen because of that narrowing of those arteries. So we definitely don't want that to happen in the brain and cause a stroke. And if a person has a history of cardiovascular disease, are they also more likely to have a stroke? Yes. Um, usually I say the heart and brain are connected. So the brain is like Baltimore. The heart is DC. We're connect and we're connected by 95. And so usually when, one, when something's happening in one place, it could also be happening in the other. So the same risk factors kind of contribute to both cerebrovascular disease as well as cardiovascular disease. So patients who you typically have cardiovascular disease have those risk factors of high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, high cholesterol. So managing that will, you know, for stroke also helps to manage that for your cardiovascular health as well. 
I love your geographical comparison there between Baltimore <laughs> and uh, D.C. I, for those of us who live in the Washington area, we know exactly what you're talking about. Just one more uh, question about risk factors. Are there any other medical conditions? You talked about high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, uh, cardiovascular disease. Any other medical conditions that we need to be aware of? So there are other um, medical conditions that can put you at an increased risk of having stroke. And sometimes those are patients who have things like rheumatological diseases such as lupus or certain genetic conditions that may predispose them to having blood clotting disorders, whether those are hemophilias or hypercoagulable states. Um, this also puts patients at risk for having strokes as well. Other things like trauma, um, those things can also put patients at risk for stroke. I wanted to get into the personal factors a little bit. I was wondering if a person has like a personal or family history of stroke or heart attack or TIA, is is there a genetic predisposal or predisposition, that's the word I was looking for, of, of having a stroke um, or... Is it more uh, environmental factors or a little of both? What would you tell us? So I would say definitely if you've had a stroke personally, you're definitely at risk for having another stroke. If you have strokes that run in your family, depending on what the cause is, because there tends to be some risk factors that just kind of run in families. Usually families kind of have the same lifestyle. So you can see some of the same risk factors within a family. Um, you may say like, oh, I have high blood pressure. So does my mom and so do my aunts and so does my dad. Um, but they all kind of live the same type of sedentary lifestyle. Um, these things can put you at risk. And it seems like there is a family um, history component of a greater risk of stroke for individuals, whether it's linked genetically with certain conditions that may run within a family or it's the, the risk factors that tend to run in your family that makes you at higher risk for stroke or TIA. Okay. And how about age, uh, age or race or, or gender? Well, speak to each of those. Yeah. So we can start with age. So we know that um, with age, there is an increased incidence of stroke. And usually that's because as we age, we, sit, we tend to tack on more risk factors. Um, you have a higher risk of having high blood pressure. Um, as we age, you can also have a higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation. We know that these things definitely put you at an increased risk for stroke. So as we age, there is a higher risk for stroke. And now to turn to race, we know that Blacks are two times more likely to have a stroke compared to whites, and Hispanics at 1.5 times higher risk um, of developing a stroke compared to, to whites. We also know that African-Americans are at risk also for higher risk from dying from their stroke compared to, to whites when we kind of look at the data. So definitely race plays a matter. And we know that there are health disparities that kind of affect these different groups that put them at risk, higher risk for having strokes, whether that's less access to care um, 
where they live. Maybe they live in more rural communities. It goes for, again back to access to care. Um, but these things put these patients at higher risk for stroke. And uh, gender, how does risk vary between men and women? Yeah, definitely. So um, women are more likely to have a stroke than men. One in five women will likely have a stroke. Um, And women are more likely to die um, from their stroke than men. We see more women with stroke because women tend to live live longer than men. So because we tend to live longer, we have more, um, just because of time, more people with strokes compared to men. And so all of those kind of go together in terms of age and race and gender, and those variables can kind of mix together in terms of who's more vulnerable. And then would we add another thing that uh, a factor, which is more and more prevalent in our country today, and that's um, overweight. Uh, Are you seeing that being overweight is also a major risk factor for having a stroke? So being overweight or obese definitely puts you at risk. We do see that it put, can put you at risk, increased risk for stroke because being overweight and obese can cause um, inflammation in the body due to the patient having these this excess fat. And that inflammation can then lead to other conditions such as hypertension and diabetes, which will put you at risk for having a stroke. And then I suspect that if, you already have a problem with overweight, being overweight or obese, that the physical inactivity and lack of exercise, that can also be a factor. Would you agree? Yes, I definitely agree with you. Um, You know, we recommend that patients, uh, to our patients, that they get at least 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise uh, three to five times a week, um, just to try to help reduce those risk factors such as the high cholesterol, the diabetes, and the hypertension. Now, when we say moderate exercise, I'm not meaning run the Gold's Gym and buy a membership and you know go in there five days a week doing CrossFit, but we can do things that are very simple, easy, and affordable to get exercise in, whether that's taking a brisk walk or gardening, there's a lot of exercise that comes with gardening. If you've ever done it, you know all the digging and lifting and pulling definitely gets your heart rate up. Um, Other things that you can do are swimming. If If you're older and you have grandkids, playing with the grandkids in the backyard, um, things that can be very simple and practical um, can be used to get that exercise in. All right. And we're going to take a break shortly, but I was going to ask about one more possible risk factor, actually two, Mm -hmm. Uh, heavy drinking or smoking what about those two oh, yeah. practices? Yes, yeah. so heavy drinking can definitely put you at risk for stroke because with heavy drinking, what can happen is it can weaken your heart over time. And that weakened heart can develop clots inside of it, which can then go to the brain and cause a stroke. So we would recommend that if you like to have a drink here and there, that you would limit it and, do, and drink in moderation. So maybe one to two drinks a day for for men and women, ideally red wine, and to forego binge drinking. So not drinking two cases of beer on the weekend, but trying to be more um, intentional about how you consume alcohol. And then smoking, 
puts you at risk for not only stroke, but heart attack as well as vascular disease because it hardens and narrows the blood vessels, not only in the brain, but in the heart and in the legs. And so we would recommend that you, you do not smoke. And I know that can be very hard for some people. So just reaching out to any healthcare, your healthcare provider for any assistance that we may be able to provide to you to help you stop smoking because that would be the best thing that you could do for your brain, heart, and legs, but as well as your lungs and trying to reduce the risk of lung cancer as well. Good advice. Well, we're going to take a short break right here for an important message. First of all, in case you tuned in late, we're talking with Shannon Burton, a nurse practitioner with the Stroke Center at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, and During the second half, we're going to be talking with Lee Stroy, who is a stroke survivor. He's also the ambassador with the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. We are talking about stroke today. Our guests are Shannon Burton with the Stroke Center at MedStar Washington Hospital Center and Lee Stroy, a stroke survivor. And so, Lee, we've heard about all of the things that we need to know, risk factors, signs, and symptoms of stroke. Help us on this. What what were the signs and symptoms when you had your first stroke? Well, the night before I went to bed, I was fine. I woke up. And that's when I realized I had a stroke. I had no signs because my stroke actually occurred while I was asleep. When I woke up, I was trying to reach my wife to tell her what was going on because I knew something was wrong. I was, I had, I was unbalanced, felt like uh, the room was spinning. I had a headache and I could not lift my left leg. So I was bouncing off the wall and I got to the top of the stairs. And when I saw my wife, uh, that was the scariest look I've ever seen her in life. I actually busted into tears. I, re- I apologized to her. I told her, I'm sorry. She looked and she immediately knew that I was having a stroke because she saw my facial droop, my confused look, and the slurred vision. So she called 911 right away and they took me to the hospital. Okay. And I want to continue with that, but I want to just ask Shannon. Shannon, is this uh, typical? Uh, Can stroke signs and symptoms vary among the individuals? First of all, help us on that. Yeah, so stroke signs and symptoms can definitely uh, vary among individuals. Um, Just given, it just depends on the location and to some degree, maybe the size. But that's not always true that the size matters because sometimes a really small stroke can cause pretty devastating symptoms. 
Um, and it can be vice versa. Sometimes patients may have larger strokes and they don't have as many symptoms. So the amount of weakness or the amount of symptoms one may have um, can be different, um, even with the same type of stroke or the same stroke in the same location for different individuals. Um, but then to try to backtrack a little bit about what Lee said about the wake up, he woke up with symptoms. So we do see patients, quite a few patients who come in with what we call wake-up strokes. They say that these strokes account to account for up to 20% of all strokes. Um, so like Lee said, usually patients will, people will go to bed normal um, and then they'll wake up, whether in the morning or in the middle of the night, um, to find that they can't move, they have difficulty speaking. Um, and so if this ever happens to you or someone you know, you still want to call 911 immediately because there are interventions and treatments that could help this person. And to that point, Shannon, why, why you said about treatment, but should a, a person like, or in Lee's case, his wife, should she drive him to the hospital or is it better to call 911 and go in an ambulance? One, just for safety purposes, right? We want to make sure that the person driving you is not going to get into an accident um, trying to drive to the hospital. We also want you to call 911 because it, it gives the hospital opportunity to be ready to receive you as a stroke patient so that we can get you the care that you need and potential treatments that you need as soon as possible. If you walk in, there's a chance chance that they may sit you in the waiting room. There's a chance that they may not get to you right away. So definitely calling 911 puts you at the top of the queue and gets you to access to quick treatment, quick, quick triage and quick recognition. And as your listeners are listening, the most important thing is to call 911. Because a lot of times I've heard from fellow stroke survivors that they thought it was okay. I may just drink some water and laying down. So it's important to know the signs. And one of the things is you have to act fast. And thank you for saying that, Lee, because I was going to ask both of you. So Lee, since you've, you've been talking about this, do you remember what kind of medications and treatment that you got in, you were given in the emergency room? Well, when I first got to the emergency room, they had me over um, observation because my blood pressure was high, but it wasn't extremely high. As Shannon stated early, 120 over 80 is average. My blood pressure was about 180 over 140. I was a little bit overweight, so they were just kind of monitoring because they weren't sure what to treat me with. And what happened was they, they had me over observation for a couple, a couple nights. I woke up and it occurred my second and third stroke. At that point, they treated me with blood pressure medication, cholesterol, and all different other kind of medications at that time. So at the, at the time that you went to the hospital for your first stroke, then you were admitted. Is that correct? That is correct. I was admitted into the hospital. And I was actually feeling great. I, I had no side effects of any kind of stroke. I was scheduled to be released on Christmas Day. When I woke up on Christmas Day, that's when I woke up to find out that I had not only two strokes, a third stroke, and that's what left me with a lot of deficits and started my road to recovery. Okay, and we want to talk more about that, but I just want to ask Shannon, 
based on what Lee just explained, is that pretty normal that um, if someone did have a stroke and presented with the symptoms that he had, that that blood pressure certainly was quite high. Um, but in terms of medications and treatment, is that about right? Or might it vary again, depending on how, what stroke symptoms people have when they come to the emergency room? So um, what I can say is that patients who are having a stroke, so calling the 911, um, because we do have the treatment, we have treatments available, acute treatments, I should say, available, which include a clot-busting medication called IVTPA. Now, this is a time-sensitive medication that can be given, but it has to be given within four and a half hours of that person's last known well. So that's one question that you will hear from people at the hospitals, like, when were they totally fine? When were they totally their usual self? Because this is what they're trying to figure out to make sure this the person is eligible for this clot-busting medication. So that's one acute treatment that we have for strokes. We also have um, a procedure called a thrombectomy or an embolectomy. And that's when there's a, one of the major blood vessels in the brain is blocked by a blood clot. We're able to do a procedure where we go through the groin, use the blood vessel in the groin to go up to the brain to pull the clot out. But again, this is also time sensitive and it has its own um, indications and contraindications. And so that's why we want you to immediately get to the hospital. Um, certain certain um, hospitals that you may go to may not have all of these capabilities. So that's um, another reason to come in. So we, if you need to be transferred, they can do that and transfer you to a facility where they're able to provide you with these treatments. Um, some patients and a lot of stroke patients do not come within the time window to get these medications. And so usually they will be admitted to the hospital and they will receive treatment for their blood pressure. They will be put on medications like aspirin or other antiplatelet medications or whatever's appropriate for um, that cause of that stroke. Um, those medications will be started for the patient, but definitely an admission um, for more stroke workup. Okay. Well, let's get back to you then, Lee. You you came in, and then on Christmas, you said you had a second and third stroke. Is that is that correct? That is correct. And they all, again, occurred while I was asleep. So some of the treatments that Shannon was talking about, they could not determine the window because I was asleep, so I was not eligible to get that. And take us a little bit further now. What what has transpired? What, what year did this occur? So yeah. I had the strokes in 2014. Okay. And what happened after Christmas Day in 2014? Have you had uh, physical or mental complications? Uh, how long did they last? Give us kind of a summary of what's happened since 2014. Right. Immediately after my stroke, they transferred me to a rehabilitation facility. And I was there for about two months. And upon sending home, you know, I was scheduled to go to physical occupation and speech therapy three times a week. And I did that for over a year. With that being said, the real therapy occurred when the real healing and the real process began when I was at home outside of a safe place. And that's when I realized how severe the deficit that I had was and other factors that was going on with my body at that time. 
Because when you're in the hospital and you're in the rehab, you know, everything is in a safe setting. From, from when, when you get up with the foods you eat and when you go home, that's when the real work begins. Did the symptoms that you had, did they continue? And was it only physical? Well, they, they, were, they were physically, physical and also mental complications after my stroke. When I, when I was at home, I, I was having a problem understanding why the stroke occurred to me being that I was at 38 years old. And so they were running a lot of tests and I was also trying to heal and recover at the same time. I suffered from impaired vision on my left eye and I had major deficits with my left hand. I had an inability, I could not open my left hand. I was walking with a cane. I was dealing with fatigue. And as far as, and as, far as mental, I, I mean, I had a lot of different things going on as far, far as, as anxiety. I was suffering from depression. I was struggling with insomnia because the strokes occurred while I was sleeping. I was having problems going to sleep. So we were, we were going through a lot of different things and all at once. And all by this is occurring, life is still happening. So my entire family had to adjust their new norm. And how did that go? It was hard. It, it was hard. It was definitely hard because at that time I had a three, a four and a five year old and a teenager. So my family had to know what the size of a stroke was. That was the first thing. It was a point that um, I cannot take overstimulation and overstimulation could be the slightest things of my kids just running around without triggering like migraines and I'll have to lay down. So in a sense, everybody became the caregiver. They had to make sure that I was taking the medication, taking the proper medication, monitoring my blood pressure, monitoring my sugar level. But everyone stepped in and, and didn't miss a beat. But as, as a provider, I felt guilty that this was occurring to my family. And I'm assuming that before you had the stroke, you also had a job. Yes, I was working for over 15 years at a financial institution. So we go from two incomes to one. Um, I'm not able to walk unless I have a cane. You know, they, I had to have someone around pretty much 24 hours to make sure that I was okay. You guys mentioned earlier about TIAs. After my first three strokes, I had up to 12 TIAs. And, and it was because I would have facial drooping for a long period of time. And due to my history, I would have to go to the hospital. Some days my blood pressure will elevate a little bit more. I'll have dizziness, slurred speech, and I'll have to go to the hospital. And now in terms of your blood pressure, are you on a medication right now? Will you continue to do that indefinitely? Do you take your blood pressure daily? Does somebody else take it? How are you uh, attending to your blood pressure to make sure that you don't get another stroke? No, um, it is, it's... It's a blood thinner that I have to take for the remainder of my life due to I had a blood clot. I'm currently taking a blood pressure medication and also a medication for my diabetes at the current time. And is your blood pressure uh, to the normal uh, limits that uh, Shannon was talking about, 120 over 80, or how is it going? I stay around that number. 
you know, it fluctuates, as you said, but the number one thing to do to control hypertension is to monitor your blood pressure because you got to know exactly what, what it is to keep everything in control. And then after that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard lifestyle changes, but it's being aware of your body. Just don't assume that, you know, my blood pressure is high because you have a headache. That might not be the case. And you mentioned now that you're taking medications. Are you taking a lot of medications? What, what are, what, tell us a little bit more about the medications that you're taking. I'm taking three medications a day and one is for, for blood pressure and one is for my diabetes and also one is to prevent a blood clot. But the medication is there to keep you at a baseline. The medication is not there to heal you. So you have to take on lifestyle changes to one, decrease the amount of medication. Because at one point I was up to 15 medications per day. And that did not happen without making drastic lifestyle changes. And did those lifestyle changes also include dietary changes? Yeah. Um, yes, it took me a while to find a, a safe space. So, But over the past few years, I've consistently been on a plant-based, low-carb diet. And what does that mean? What, what kind of foods are you eating? What kinds of foods are you avoiding? What, what would you tell our listeners in terms of, of maybe how many calories you uh, have a day? Right. So I'm on the extreme end. So I, I'm, I'm a vegan. I've been a vegan for a year and a half. So I wouldn't say you don't have to go that. But the carbs, you know, and the carbs, be mindful of what carbs are, you know, the rice, the potatoes, because all that is sugar. And if you're eating those kind of foods, those fatty foods, you got to make sure that one, if you're eating them, you got to get up and exercise. You don't want to eat that food and then go lay down. And then first thing in the morning, eat something with a high sugary, whether it's, you know, syrup and extra things like that. And more importantly, I've cut out fast food. That's good advice. (laughs) As good as it is and as boring it is. But right now they have a lot of, you know, good places that you can get smoothies and different kind of alternative things in a burger. And everything and everything is in moderation because you just don't want to burn out. It's a consistent lifestyle change. And in my case, you know, it's a lot easier to prevent a stroke. If I knew certain things, I would have did lifestyle changes a long time ago. And, and to that point, Lee, about, about your weight, w- w- were you overweight when you had your first stroke? I was probably about 20 to 30 pounds overweight. And, you know, at that time, I, I've, lost, I've lost about maybe 40 to 50 pounds. I'm at, I'm at, a, I'm at a great weight. And, and I, again, it's just being consistent. That's the hardest thing. No matter what you're doing, you have to be consistent. And due to my history and my health, because I always live with the fear of possibly having another stroke. So I know that I cannot cut corners when it comes to things. Now, I do have days where I may eat a little bit more, you know, things, but it's, it's, it's never a true indulgence of anything. You know, at, at one point, you know, I thought that every meal you had to have a dessert and come to find out later on, it wasn't really that I had a dessert. I didn't know that I was a diabetic until after I had my third stroke. So, you know, having a dessert every night is not a must. It was actually my body craving for the, the, the sweets, for the sugar. I was just wondering, uh, you mentioned about maintaining a healthy weight. Now, do you have a exercise regimen that you 
use every day and, and practice every day? What, what, what are you doing? That's a great question. As Shannon said, the number one thing is to make sure that you exercise every day in some kind of form. I make sure that I do at least 30 minutes to an hour. And exercise can consist of stretching, meditation, yoga, moving, walking, walking with the dog, walking with my kids, just outside in any kind of capacity. I kind of make sure that I walk a, a mile and a mile and a half a day, but sometimes it's up to three. And some days I may not be able to walk, but I make sure I do some kind of moving. And the best thing that I've learned now is that it's okay that you tomorrow make sure I do it. Don't go into bad habits. So since the strokes, I had to create good habits. And, and the number one thing is just trying to be consistent and, and, and appreciate the smaller things. Walking outside 30 minutes and, you know, going walking with my wife around the corner is just as good as walking for a mile. It's that movement. It's all about getting that movement. And Shannon mentioned in the first part of the program about family history. Was there a family history of diabetes or cardiovascular disease or stroke in your family? It was. Um, my grandmother suffered a stroke, but she was she was at an older age. And that's the, the misconception. If your lifestyle, you know, I, I, I smoked prior to my stroke. I was a heavy drinker. You know, I have fast food, not going to the doctor, not listening to my body because Maybe eight months ago, prior to having a stroke, I was starting to get headaches. I was starting to wake up at night sweating. I was starting to get these things that I would say, you know what, I'll, I'll put off. I'll put this off. And probably a week to two before Christmas, I actually went to the doctor and they told me that, hey, you know, Lee, you have high blood pressure. You need to get on this medication. Your cholesterol level is high. Definitely stop smoking and drinking. Thinking that I have time, of course, I said, I'm going to start all this January 1st, the new year. And lo and behold, a week later, I suffered from the stroke. Wow. It just goes to show you, you really didn't have that time. And did you think that maybe because you were 38 years old that uh, it, it couldn't happen to me, that it would only happen as I get older? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I didn't know what a stroke was, to be honest with you. I know that my grandmother had it, and I just assume that, okay, that's kind of something that happens when people are older, you know, one of those things. And thinking that you have time and thinking that you have time. And, and over the past six years, I have met more people 30 to 50 that had strokes other than 70. So the misconception stroke has no face to it. It has, it doesn't discriminate, you know, if you're not taking care of your body. And one of the things that we have not talked about, and one of the things that I, I, I bet in the next year or so will be on when you go take a physical is your stress level. At that time, my stress level was really high. And being in the DMV area, stress, whether it's traffic and things are getting about to go, it's how we're processing. And I'm thinking that you, you may be thinking that you're processing everything well, but your internal body, the clock is telling you something's wrong. If I was listening to the migraines eight months prior to it, I could have been in front of a lot of things. But stress is definitely a key factor. And and, and thank you for bringing that up, because I, I did want to ask you kind of, where are you now? I mean, this is what you said this happened in when? 2014? 2014. What's happening now? Where are you? 
Well, I've, like I stated, I've made numerous lifestyle changes. The main thing is to learn that I've learned is to live in the moment because I know I can't control the future. And when I was going through my recovery, and make no mistake, anyone that has a stroke, you're always in recovery for the rest of your life in some kind of form. And one of the things that I learned was I had to be kind to myself. For the first couple of years, I was ashamed to say I even had a stroke. But now I embrace my new norm, and I am proud to say I'm a stroke survivor. And it, as, this, as everything unfolds, the most important thing is to control what you're able to control. And, and it's okay not to be okay. I'm sure that over the last year, you also had to cope with the coronavirus and all of that entailed, which was certainly difficult to deal with in, in addition to what you have just described. How did that go? Right. With, with, with dealing with the virus and the changes with that, one thing that, that occurred was I was not able to go see my neurologist, my hematologist, and certain doctors. So I really had to make sure that I was managing my, you know, managing my medication, doing everything that I was supposed to do. And, you know, that's one of the most important things to do, that every six months go see your, your neurologist, your hematologist, your cardiologist. Make sure that you take your physicals because things change with your primary doctor at any given moment. So it's very important to do that. So when the virus first started, you know, with everything, I wasn't sure. I wasn't even comfortable, but good. I'm glad to see that everything kind of changed around what we were able to do conferences over Zoom to keep keep that going. And I was still able to check my numbers because I did have a blood pressure machine. I have the equipment to check my sugar level and going in every six months to take everything else. So I'm glad to say everything on that note is, is great. And Lee, we're, what do you see for your future? Do you think that you'll be able to go back to work? Will there be a new kind of job for you? What do you see for your future? Well, right now I'm not employed. I receive full disability. But what I'm able to do when I'm capable, I'm able to share my story with other stroke survivors. I support a lot of local hospitals in my region with stroke survivors recovery. And right now, I think my path is to be here and tell my story. I've done different events and the people that, you know, just, just spreading, you having this platform, you don't, the difference that you're making in the community because knowledge, the more that we get this message out. And I would like to continue supporting people in some kind of capacity to recover from a stroke and caregivers. And like I said, um, it, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's a commitment. It's my new norm. So I'm able to be more gracious with myself when I have facial droops, when I have memory loss, when I have certain things that trigger things, I'm able to now, let me just lay down a little bit. Let me, let me take, you know, and let me regroup. But initially not knowing what's going on would always put me in a, in a panic and a fear. So I just want to tell people that there are systems out there. The American Heart and the Stroke Association does amazing things. It's just, a, you know, people in MedScar, I've been out there. It's a lot of great information out there. So, I, you know, as long as I'm here, I want to use my energy to support and help others recover. Well, that's a good testimonial. And to that, I wanted to just uh, get back to Shannon. You gave already some very good uh, resources. Shannon, any other 
uh, besides what Lee had said, uh, resources that uh, our listeners can learn about strokes? So um, he mentioned MedStar, MedStar or MedStar Washington Hospital Center website, as well as the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association. Um, but they could also visit sites like the MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital. Um, for stroke survivors, they have a stroke comeback club, which is a support group that meets. Um, if there's anyone ever interested in any research or clinical trials surrounding stroke, um, they can go to clinicaltrials.gov. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention, since we are talking about stroke, are stroke warning signs. Um, and we use the acronym for um, BFAST. And so each letter stands for something. So B stands for balance. If you have any sudden changes in your balance where you aren't able to walk straight, you're leaning to one side while you're walking, you feel very dizzy, unable to stand. Um, if you eyes is E, um, if you experience any vision loss, blurred vision, loss of vision in one eye, um, any sudden loss of vision, you would want to call 911. Facial droop, that's what the F and B fast. Facial droop, if you notice that one side of the face is drooping. Um, a stands for arm. So if you notice that suddenly that person is unable to lift their arm or the arm is weak. Um, same thing goes for the leg as well. If you notice that the leg all of a sudden becomes weak and you can no longer use it, you would want to call 911 right away. Um, and then the S stands for speech. So um, not only speaking, is the person's speech slurred? Um, can you understand what they're saying? Are the words appropriate to the conversation? Um, are they having a hard time understanding you suddenly? Um, so that S stands for speech and then T is for time. So we know time is brain and you wanna call 911 right away. Um, and as Lee also spoke about it, all the lifestyle changes he had to do, um, I often say, and I actually got this from one of the physicians that I work with, is that it's time for a little TLC, not necessarily tender love and care, but total lifestyle change. So I will end with that. Thank you both so much. You have both provided so much excellent information during National Stroke Awareness Month. And I want to thank Shannon Burton, nurse practitioner with MedStar Washington Hospital Center Stroke Center, and Lee Stroy, a stroke survivor, for joining me today. And if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website. That's www.agingmattersonline.com. And at this site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV shows and also the podcasts on Apple and Spotify, including this program, which will be on Apple and Spotify after the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly newsletter to receive updates about new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you all for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. 
Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.